morning, everybody. Good to see you all. You can turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount. And while you are turning there, just a couple of things I wanted to remind you of. So uh, number one is that next week our service times change. So I wanted to remind you of that, or maybe you may be hearing it for the first time, but we've been trying to say it often, early and often. Uh, So just a reminder, we're going outside next week and going to worship together, and we're excited about that. Uh, Face coverings will be optional. It's up to you, uh, your comfort level. But we will meet at 9 and 1045, all right? 9 and 1045. So I just want to make sure that you guys are aware of that as the those times are different than we've been meeting. So, uh, and if there's weather, still 9, 10, 45, we'll just come inside. So wanted to make sure that you guys were aware of that. And then the second thing I want to remind you of, just before we pray and look at Matthew 5, 8, wanted to uh, let you know giving, just give you a little bit of an, a heads up. I, I, this church is, in my almost seven years here now, has always been such a generous place. You continue to be so. And from the bottom of my heart, I'm so thankful for that. I also always want to make sure I'm making you aware of needs because you always respond in generosity. So we are a bit behind uh, in giving for the fiscal year, and that's coming to an end in the next two months, at the end of June. So I just wanted, as your pastor, make you aware of that need. We're a little bit behind where we'd like to be, continuing to fund ministries that God has called us to, uh, both here and abroad. And so... Just want you to be prayerfully considering how God would then lead you to give uh, in these last months of the fiscal year. So I trust that as I let you know that, you'll take it to the Lord in prayer, and then you will respond as he leads you. So I just want to let you know that. And I also, anytime, you know, I'm not afraid to talk about money with you all because it's an important part of our discipleship, so I'm never afraid to talk about that. But I also always want to make sure that when I, as your pastor, talk to you about money, uh, that I remind you that it's not so much about you giving, it's, it's about learning to trust God with what he's entrusted to us. That's my heart for you, is that you and I would learn to trust God with what he's entrusted to us. Because what that does is it guards us against a myriad of sins like greed, uh, self-centeredness. Giving and generosity is a huge guard against sin in our life. And not only that, it also propels us forward uh, in spiritual growth. It does. It just it challenges our faith. It stretches us. And that's what I really want for you as your pastor. I want you to be generous so that those things would take place in your life. So just pray. Consider how the Lord would lead you to give. Uh, and we'll go forward in that way. All right, let me pray for us. Then we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Lord Jesus, we come to your word today, and specifically words that you spoke to your people who were gathered to listen to you. Pray that you'd help us to see with fresh eyes what it means that the pure in heart will see God. Just help us to understand that. We need you to give us the eyes to see that. Holy Spirit, be our teacher today. Pray that you would um, help us to rightly understand your word Pray that you guard my mouth to speak what is true according to your word and pray that you would give us hearts to receive it, each and every one of us. Thank you that you are so gentle with us and thank you that you paint a picture for us of what it will be one day when we see you face to face. Help us to treasure that. Above all things, help us to treasure that. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Right, friends, whether you are at home joining us or whether you're here, hopefully you have found Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Now, I want to say about this that the verse we're looking at today as we continue, remember, to look at these Beatitudes, which 
just by way of reminder, are the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he's talking to us about what a citizen of his kingdom looks like, a follower of his. This is what they should look like. Before he gets to a lot of the things that we should do, he spends a lot of time on the things that we are and should be and be growing in. And that's what these Beatitudes really represent. He's saying this is the kind of character a follower of mine possesses, a citizen of this thing called my kingdom. And so we've seen him say, well, things like, blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right, and we're gonna see more things like, blessed are the peacemakers, that'll be next week. But today, we come to this really seminal, this really important passage where Jesus says something that's just massively important when he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, I wanna say to you that scripture is, in part, one of the things it is, is it's a weapon against sin in our lives. And I have found, just personally, that there is no weapon more effective than this verse. This simple, straightforward verse has proven over the years of my life to be one of the greatest weapons against sin. When I face temptation, I find myself saying again and again, no, 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 Trent. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, and I want to see him. I want to be in his presence. I want to know him, I want to be like him, And what a weapon it is against sin when temptation is in front of her eyes, when there's a temptation to gossip or to be greedy or to turn her eyes to lust or to set our hearts on things that don't please the Lord, to say, no, no, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And I I want you to learn to take this weapon up in your battle against sin. There is no greater weapon in Scripture than perhaps this one. It It is at the very center of Christ's teaching to us And at the very center of the story of God's redemptive work, what it means to see God and be given opportunity to see God, what it means to be pure in heart. So I just want you to see that it's both exceedingly simple, it's not complex, that's part of the beauty of it. It's one short sentence and it's incredibly impactful, but the depths of it can never be fully plumbed. So we could could spend week after week and, and not exhaust the brilliance of this one simple phrase, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. So we wanna do a couple things today. I wanna to give you three keys for understanding what Jesus means when he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I'm gonna give you three keys to that. That's the first thing I wanna do. Then I wanna to talk to you about why this idea of seeing God should be uh, so massively motivational to us. Like, What is it about that idea of seeing God that is so incredibly powerful for us in terms of pursuing a purity of heart? because there may be some things you don't see there if you don't see yourself in the scope of all of history. We tend to be pretty myopic. We see our lives and not even all of our lives. We tend to look at the moment right in front of us and when you zoom out, if you will, and see the scope of God's big story and where we fit within it, you begin to understand how radical a thing it is that Jesus would have said, you will see God. We'll look at that a little bit. And then I simply want to do the very best that I can, and I don't have the words for it, but we have the words of Scripture, which are as close as anyone can come to, to, to understanding what it will be like, what it will be like to see God. And we tread carefully even when we ponder that, don't we? What will it be like? So we want to do those three things today. So three keys to understanding what Jesus means when he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So the first key is we have to understand what do we do with this verse or what's the connection of this verse with verse six in Matthew chapter five. So if you remember, if you've been with us as we've been studying this, we saw in verse six that Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Anybody remember? For righteousness, 
for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now when I say that, and then I come to verse eight, and I read, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, I might say to myself, those sound very similar. Those sound like, he's almost, is he just repeating the same thing? Is he just saying, oh, okay, purity of heart, righteousness, kind of same idea. Uh, and then, you know, what is satisfied? What is, you shall see God? What's the connection between those two? Let me help you understand the progression of Jesus' thought here and how he's sort of moving us forward because he's very intentional, as we've seen each week, in the order in which he says things. So here's the best way to understand the connection between verse six and verse eight. In verse six, Jesus is talking about, we learned, what it, is, what it means to have an intense longing for righteousness. He's saying you should have an intense longing to be like me, to have your thoughts and your emotions and your will aligned with mine. And so when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's talking about this intense longing that would be in us. And we're blessed if we have that. And then he tells us that if we have it, it will come to pass. We will be satisfied so then when we come to verse eight, what we understand that what he's doing is, he's saying those who, are, who have that intense longing for righteousness will be satisfied because there will be actual growth in purity of heart. That's what he's saying in verse eight. If the intense longing of verse six is there, it will create the actual growth in righteousness or in purity of heart that we talk about in verse eight. And then in verse six, what is it that satisfies? If I'm longing for righteousness, intensely hungering for it, I will be satisfied. What's gonna satisfy me? What verse eight talks about, that you will see God. That's what satisfies. Not just that you get righteousness, that's the implication of verse six. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll have it. But it's not the righteousness itself that makes you go, wow, awesome, I'm so glad. Look at me, look how righteous I am. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the reason righteousness is so satisfying rather than sin being satisfying, is because righteousness opens the door to see God. And when you see God, that's what will satisfy you. So to sum that up, what Jesus is saying is that longing is satisfied because it produces purity of heart. And that purity of heart enables you to see God. You with me? That's the connection between those two verses. So that's the first thing we have to understand is how he's developing that thought. Now, the second thing we need in order to understand what Jesus means here, is to ask this question. What does it mean to be pure in heart? That's a pretty natural question, right? If we said blessed to the pure in heart, then the first question we should ask is, well, what, then who's that person? Who is the person who is pure in heart? So a couple things that we have to understand in order to make sure uh, we kind of get what Jesus is doing. Now remember that in Christ, you and I have been given the status before God of having pure hearts. We've been given the status of being righteous. But the thing that we've seen throughout these Beatitudes is that Jesus isn't just talking about the status that we have in Christ because of his death and resurrection. He's talking about growing in that status. He's talking about growing in that kind of righteousness in verse six. He's talking about growing in purity of heart here in verse eight. So he's not just saying, hey, you're blessed because you've been given purity of heart because you've become a Christian. He's saying the Christian is the person who given that status wants to continue to let that grow into every area of their life. So the purity of heart he's talking about there is a growing impurity of heart. Now when he talks about the heart, let's make sure we understand that part. Because when Jesus talks about the heart, when the Old Testament and the New Testament talk about heart, they talk about it differently than how you and I usually understand it. When we use the heart in our vernacular, in our sort of where we live, we usually mean somebody's emotions. We talk about their heart, we're talking about their emotions, how they feel. 
But when Jesus talks about the heart, he's not just talking about the emotions. The heart for Jesus was the very center of a person so that it encapsulated not just their emotions, but their intellect and their will also. So when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he's saying, blessed are those who are pure in their intellect, in their emotions, and in their wills, that their wills are bent towards the things of God. It's the very center of who a person is, not just their emotions. Does that make sense? You with me? Okay, awesome. So we got that. And the last part of understanding that is what, well, then what is purity? And here's what purity is. Very simply, to be pure is to be good through and through. Complete consistency of being. To be from very inside to very outside the same. And not just the same in terms of inconsistency, but, or the same in sort of uh, negative things, but the same in goodness, the same in righteousness from inside to outside, through and through. Uh, guys, how many of you are married? Who are my married guys? Okay, how many of you bought a diamond when you got engaged? All right, so if you bought a diamond when you got engaged, you had to learn about the four C's of diamonds and then you immediately forgot that information because you would never need it ever again, ever, because it's a waste of time. But you had to learn it and then you had to forget it. And the four C's of diamonds, all right, gentlemen, can we do it? Carrot, cut, color, and clarity. Yeah, absolutely, all right? And you know what's amazing is, ladies, I don't get this, All those four C's are there because you like shiny things. It's just about what makes it sparkle more. If it's cut this way, it will sparkle more. Okay, who cares? But apparently that's appealing. So, gotta get that princess cut or whatever it was called, right? So, here's what's interesting. When you talk about You know, carrot's just the size, right? When you talk about um, cut, it's just how it's shaped. And then when you get to color, it's whether it's like this pure, brilliant, clear clear color, like how clear it is versus how yellow it is. But then the last one is the one that's important for our purposes today. Because clarity is how many imperfections are in the diamond. And then it's rated according to those imperfections, how big they are, how small they are. Like if you went into the jeweler shop and you looked through the the jeweler's lens, you could see the little, uh, I could never see them. He told me they were there. I was like, sure, right? And I'm looking and I'm like, there could be cracks through this entire thing. I would have no idea. I don't even know what you're talking about. But apparently they're there, right? And you have all these little imperfections. And so I did a little research this week and here's what I found out. Jewelers always say, that of all the four C's, the least important one to worry about is clarity, the number of imperfections. And I thought, huh, that's interesting because that's the opposite of the way it is with us and our hearts. See, to be pure is to be through and through rid of imperfections. No inconsistencies, no imperfections. And what for a jeweler might be like, well, it's the least important, it'll sparkle, it'll shine. What makes us sparkle and shine, if you'll forgive the analogy, is to be completely devoid of imperfections. Now again, we, we know that that's not possible in this life, but we want to grow in that. And so just like we you know, had to learn if you know, we were buying a diamond at some point, we had to kind of learn those four C's. What Jesus is getting at is that fourth C, that clarity, that there would be no imperfections. Right, through and through. My other option as an illustration was to talk about making pancakes and when you get chunks of batter in the pancakes, they're inconsistent. So if you like that one better, just go with that one. Stir it till all the lumps are out, all right? 
That's what it means to be pure in heart. Now, Christ is calling then Christians to a continual elimination of sin from our lives. That's, that's what he's saying. Blessed are the pure in heart. The last question we gotta ask and answer to understand what Jesus means here is when will the pure in heart see God? So just like with all the other Beatitudes, there's that same formula, right? Blessed is this kind of person, whoever, whatever you're growing in, this is what you need to grow in, and you're blessed if you do that. And then the reward is what? And then it's stated at the end, and the reward here is blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what, church? See God, all right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's the promise that's being made here. Now, the question becomes, what is Jesus talking about, or when is he saying we will see God? You see, in a very real way, you and I are able to see God now. He leads us, he directs us, we hear him through his spirit dwelling within us. He imparts the truth to us through his word. We gather and worship and we experience a sense of his nearness. All those things are true and in a very real way, we see God now and it's miraculous that we do so. It's miraculous. Listen to the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 through 16. It's Paul talking and he says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now what he's talking about there is Moses going up on Mount Sinai and receiving the Ten Commandments, the Old Covenant. And he's saying that Old Covenant, even though it's been replaced by a new one, which he's gonna talk about in a second, which is infinitely more glorious, even that Old Covenant was so glorious when it was given by God that Moses had to put a veil over his face because having been in the proximity of God, he was so full of glory, so shining with glory that the people couldn't look at him, not just God, but Moses, who had been near God. And so he put a veil over his face, and Paul is saying, that old covenant still comes with that veil. It doesn't remove it. It doesn't enable you to see God, because you cannot remove your imperfections through the works of your hands. You can't do it. That's why the old covenant comes with a veil. That's what he says. Verse 14, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, he's talking about the old covenant, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And he's not just talking about freedom to do what you want. He's talking about freedom to see God. Freedom to behold God, to draw near to God. And we all, with unveiled face, let that sink in for a minute. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, from the glory of being image bearers, people made in his image, to the glory of being redeemed saints by the blood of Jesus. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Here's what Paul is saying. There is a sin-killing transformation that happens when we behold the person of Christ when we see him, and in him, the veil is removed between us and God. 
the veil that was there that was unlifted by any of our works that we could ever do, it never made the veil budge one inch. Nothing could give us access to the presence of God. And then Jesus came, died and rose, and removed the veil. And you and I now are able to behold God in a very real way. We see God now. And it's astounding and amazing. But listen to this. As miraculous as that is, and as transformational as that is, I hope you saw the powerful transformation that's talked about in that, being transformed from one degree of glory to another. How? By beholding God through the presence of Christ, through the removed veil, right? As, a, as miraculous and as astounding as that is, that's actually not the kind of seeing God that Jesus is talking about. Because like with all the other Beatitudes, the promises that Jesus is talking about are future tense. He's saying to them, not blessed are you because you have me and in me you see God now. He's saying, blessed are you who are pure in heart because you will see God. There's going to come a day where there's going to be an even more astounding kind of seeing. He's talking about the day that his kingdom comes in full. And he's saying, oh, you see God now but you will see him and it will be astounding. Now, how do I know that? Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Same author, same church he's writing to, different letter. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. You might remember this chapter. We studied it last summer. It's this love chapter. It talks about what love is like. Patient and kind, doesn't envy, doesn't boast. You remember this. In verse 12, he says this, for now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then, how? Face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Do you see it? What he's saying is, yes, we see God now through the removed veil that Christ has worked for us that brought about, but there's a kind of seeing that makes the kind of seeing we have now, it's going to look like the fact that we're just looking in a dimly lit, lit mirror. That's what it's gonna feel in comparison to what will come. In comparison to the kind of seeing of God that will transpire, we see now by comparison in a dimly lit mirror. How astounding must this day be? And that's the motivation that Christ is pointing us to. He's saying, blessed are the pure in heart. Okay, I wanna be pure in heart. What's my motivation? You will see God. All those who are in Christ are people who long to put sin to death and to grow in purity of heart. And the great motivation, the great motivation is that they know that that will bring them into the very presence of God and he's the one they want. I wanna see him. I wanna be pure in heart. That's what he's getting at. So let me then, those are the three keys for understanding this, this text. So hopefully that helps. Now, let me just ask this question and orient us, if I can, to our historical position. Because we have to ask the question, why is this, such a, why is this supposed to be such a powerful motivation? I don't wanna just presume that I say this. And even though I know the Spirit dwells in, in many, if not most of you, right, as followers of Jesus. And so what, sh what I trust is that the Spirit in you says, yes, resonates with that. But perhaps, just perhaps, we shouldn't just presume that you go, oh, I see the motivation of that. Let me help you understand why this is so radical. 
Now I'm gonna do, I'm not gonna read all these texts yet. I just wanna take you back and help you understand how absolutely astounded you should be that you will be able to see God, both now through the veil removed in Christ, 2 Corinthians 3, and also that you will see him in, a, in an even more astounding way. Go all the way back to the garden. And in Genesis chapter two, one of the things that we see, and I love uh, the way my seminary professor, Dr. Lawson Younger, used to put this. He, when he would talk about God's creation, he would say, God created the world like he was creating a nest, this perfect nest into which he was gonna put people. It's perfectly designed and perfectly oriented. Then he makes this beautiful, brilliant garden and he puts humanity into it. And he says, here, everything you need to thrive, everything you need to flourish, everything you could ever want, everything you could ever need, right? And he puts them in that garden. And the thing that we see that's even then more amazing is that God who had created this world, we find out in Genesis chapter three, verse eight, was actually coming down and walking in the garden. We don't know all the details of that. We don't know, did he sit with them? Did they just take walks together for hours? Did they just sit together? What was that like? But we know that God was in the garden with his people, with Adam and Eve. And here's the great tragedy then, is chapter three, verse 23, what we find happens when Adam and Eve rebel against God and choose autonomy rather than service to him. Want to be like him in terms of setting their own agenda, determining their own direction, rather than saying, oh, he is God and I come underneath him. What happens in verse 23 is the most tragic thing of all. They are cast out of the garden. And what's tragic is not that they're cast out of a garden. They're cast out of the presence of God. No longer able to behold him. No more walks in the, in the cool of the evening with their creator. They will still interact. People will still interact with God, but at a distance. No longer able to see him. No longer able to be with him. And so every person that encounters God in the scriptures from that point forward, and this is most of human history, friends, acts in a way that says, I have encountered God and I'm going to die now. Genesis 32, Jacob, who doesn't see the face of God, thinks he does, but sees just a manifestation of the presence of God and wrestles with him, says, I cannot believe I have seen God and lived. Moses, Exodus chapter 33, says, God, show me your glory. And God says, you can't see my glory and live. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'll put my hand over you. I'll pass by. You can see my back as I move away from you. That's as much as you can have. More than that, and you would die. Manoah, in the book of Judges, sees a manifestation of the glory of God, not face-to-face -face with God, just a manifestation of his glory on the earth. And what does he say? He and his wife, we are surely going to die, but we have seen God. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter six, verse five, woe is me, for I'm an unclean, a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the glory of God. What does he expect to happen? I'm going to die. That's the reaction from Genesis 3 on of every person who encounters even a manifestation, not the face of God, but a manifestation of his presence of any kind is to fall down and to tremble because the assumption is my sinful self cannot even encounter the presence of God in that way. I will surely die. 
Now come to the work of Jesus. In Matthew chapter five, verse eight, he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? See God. Do you understand what he's saying? Everyone who was sitting there should have fallen over. Will what? How? Jesus knows what he will do to lift the veil. And when he teaches you and I, he says, the reason it's such motivation is because when we understand that for most of human history, no one was able to do this. And now you and I sitting on this side of the cross take it for granted. How often do we take for granted that we can just enter into the presence of God? The veil's been removed. I can just go. Flippantly offer. <laughs> Lord, do this. Lord, oh, you know. Look, I, I'm, I'm all about interacting with the Lord who is our Father and good and loving, but we should recognize and remember it means over the course of all of human history for a group of people to say, oh, oh we see God. Radical. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. He is giving us the greatest motivation because he's saying that I have not just, I'm not, I'm not just giving you the opportunity to see God. I am telling you that the greatest problem of every human being who's ever lived is that they couldn't see him. And now I've fixed that. And you can see him and you will see him. That's why it's such powerful motivation to put away sin. How trivial <laughs> when you understand that God has solved the greatest problem of every human being who's ever lived, that they couldn't see him, do you really need to take a second look at that picture that you don't should be looking at? Do you really need to speak that word of gossip? Do you really need to speak ill of your brother or sister? I mean, really? Do you want to be pure in heart, or do you want to play with trivialities? Oh, let us be pure in heart for we shall see God. Now the last thing, that, that's why it's such powerful motivation. That's why it's such a great weapon against sin. I just wanna read to you from Revelation 21 and Revelation 22, just a few verses, because I, I, clearly I can't do better, okay? What will it be like when we see God? Now I was tempted to go to Revelation 4 and the vision of the throne in, in the book of Revelation. God on his throne surrounded by a rainbow that's like an emerald and a sea of glass extending out before him and lightning and peals of thunder coming from the throne and the elders bowing down. I'm kind of going there now. I was tempted to go to Revelation 19 and the wedding supper of the Lamb and our covenant with Christ coming to its complete fulfillment. Like, like our marriage to him completely fulfilled, the covenant established once and for all in finality, brought to bear in our lives. I'm tempted to go there, but, but that's more about seeing Jesus. This is where we see God. Revelation 21, verse one through eight. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Remember earlier in Revelation, the sea had been the place from which the Antichrist and the beast, the, the dragon had come. So he's saying, the place from which evil used to come, now is gone. There's no more evil coming anywhere. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God 
is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Can you see that? Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. You see it? They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Listen, friends, when we see God, he will make his home with us again and forever. When we see God, we will know what it is to have a perfect sense of belonging. When we see God, we will never again experience fear rooted in death, because death will be no more. When we see God, we will never mourn or feel pain again. When we see God, we will know how perfectly satisfying God is and how absolutely great grace is. When we see God, we will see perfect justice executed for every evil thing that has ever been perpetrated. When we see God, we will know what it is to eat and drink life from him and not lesser sources of life. When we see God, we will see every earthly thing, every mystery, and all that has transpired, no longer through lesser lights, but through the light of his presence. Listen, you might be tempted to say, but Trent, aren't, aren't you just highlighting like the benefits of being in the presence of God? But friends, understand, all of those things I just said to you that the scriptures paint the picture for us and motivate us with, they do so because they are the direct result of being in the presence of God. It is his nature that where he is, those things usher forth. It's not as if we say, oh, I'm so glad death is no more. I couldn't care less if, if God's here or not. 
Death is no more because God is here. Mourning is no more because God is here. Crying is no more because God is here. That's the point. Those things are all the direct result of his very nature. And when we see him, all those things will come to pass. So friends, we will see God. Let us be pure in heart. Let us be pure in heart. Pray together. Lord Jesus, there are no words that describe your great goodness. We thank you for your word, scriptures, which so brilliantly explain to us what it will be like. And so put that picture in our minds. Help us to see it, to long for the day. We want to be pure in heart. We're astounded by what you have worked in us already and we look to what will be established through us and in us. We ask you to do it. We're fragile and weak, we admit it. Frail. So shore us up by your great strength and in your great goodness. Would you receive our praises now? Our hearts, as we've heard your word, they, they now overflow, wanting to give you praise. So let it usher forth from those hearts now and may you be well pleased to receive it. The glory is all due to you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.